Wet streaks drizzled down Zephyrine's brown cheeks to the front of her white bib apron. Prim and pressed and resolute in her service to me, my friend awaited orders from her sovereign. I'm not that anymore. I'm no longer a queen. Flat and pulsing, wanting to grab onto something real, I stilled my hand. I'm just Madame Christoph, nothing more. Could this merely be another nightmare? We, oui. Exiled to Europe was to be salvation, renewal. I wanted to pray, but God wouldn't hear an angry woman. This is the Haitians need to rise up again. They need to find the unification. They need to rise again as one people, as they did before, because that's how you destroy monsters. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Vanessa Riley, author of the novel Queen of Exiles. And whether I use the landscape of a historical romance or a historical mystery or my favorite historical fiction, I'm going to give you a story that is wrapped in history, but will move you and show you things of people with agency, you're going to look at history a little differently. Vanessa Riley is an award-winning author of Island Queen, a Good Morning America buzz pick, and her newest novel, Queen of Exiles. Riley's historical novels showcase the hidden histories of black women and women of color, emphasizing strong sisterhoods and dazzling multicultural communities. Her works encompass historical fiction, historical romance, and historical mystery, and have been reviewed by The Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, NPR, Publisher Weekly, and The New York Times. Today, I'll be talking to her about her newest historical novel, Queen of Exiles. Can you start by giving us a little bit of a historical background of the Haitian Revolution? I know your readers will be familiar with it, but I feel like a lot of people aren't all that familiar with what the Haitian Revolution was. Yeah, the Haitian Revolution was a culmination of a number of acts. Um, There were a lot of external and internal pressures, but you have a society that is stratified in the ways of, of the Grand Blanc, which is the richest the richest in society, the Petite Blancs, who want to be Grand Blancs, um, who own shops and whatnot. Um, and they ha- those this is the voting class. They own property. Uh, then you have the, the Franchi, which could be free colors, which were um, biracial individuals, or free Blacks. 
Um, and then you had the enslaved class. They were the lowest of the realm. But this is the work that was, they're doing the work of the sh making the sugar, the rum, the molasses, the, the cotton. This, these classes are yearning to be free. They're being abused in the system. Then you have these others who have some forms of rights, but are always looking to at the grand blanks who have the ultimate freedom. So everybody is is striving for this this level of freedom until it boils over, and the ruling classes believe in cruelty. They don't un they think the cruelty will prevent people from uprising, but they don't understand that there's a point where there is so much pain you have nothing more to lose, and so you start having revolts across the uh, entire of Hispaniola, which is Santa Domingue during this time frame. Um, for about 50 years, women were revolting. Women were poisoning people on the plantations. They were tired of the abuse. Most people focus on the last 10 years where you have the rise of Toussaint Levatour, you have Henri Christophe, you have Jean-Jacques Dessalines. They never focus on the women and the women were integral. Revolts were happening all across the West Indies. The most successful one is the one in Haiti. And it's primarily because women joined the fight literally on the battlefields. Um, and you get to a point where Jean-Jacques Dessalines has unified the entire island, everyone from the Tainos in the mountains to the Grand Blancs that remained in Haiti, to all of the coloreds, free coloreds, enslaved coloreds, and uh, enslaved and free blacks. Everybody's now free, and they're all unified, and they drive the French from the land. Um, this should be a celebration for humanity. This should be a celebration of what the enduring spirit has come to. Uh, Jean-Jacques Deslin's first uh, constitution makes everybody equal. He makes actually everyone black. So no matter who you were or what you were, you were black. You are now black in Haiti or Haitia, uh, named after the Taino Indians. Um, and you have a moment in time where everybody's starting at the same level. You're all pushing for freedoms. But as with any new society, there are still continued pressures. The, the stratified regimes, although Grand Blancs may not be anymore, now you have more people who are striving to be on top. There's divisions still within the society, and there's also external pressures. France was humiliated. They want to come back and they want to beat, they want to reconstitute and, and actually take uh, Haiti back. Uh, the world stage is worried, especially in the United States, that the this new freedom, this this ending of enslavement, will now catch hold and make uh, the same passions happen in the United States. There's a point where the United States is actually driving people out. Uh, they don't want any Haitians to come because they're fearful that their hold on enslavement will end. So you have a a, a continuing stirring pot. And with this book, Queen of Exiles, you get to see, you see a vision of what could have been. You see what, if the world had embraced Haiti and brought her into the fold, what the world could have looked like, uh, the advances of the, of the Haitian people. Um, and so this is a time frame that I think we all should study. I'm a firm believer that if you do not understand history, it will repeat itself. Um, and anytime you have a mass of people who are yearning to be free, yearning for freedom, yearning to be recognized 
for every aspect of the humanity and it's denied, there are going to be serious repercussions. Yeah, very well said and quite a fascinating, fascinating part of history that um, you're right, it has ties into world history and, and a lot of events at that time. You talked early about the women and the role that they played in the Haitian Revolution and that, that part of history. So let's talk about the, the Queen of Exiles, the main historical figure in the novel, the main character in your novel, Marie-Louise Coy David. Who was she? What class was she a part of? And how did she become the queen of the kingdom of Haiti? Marie's Louise, uh, or Queen Louise's rise, is amazing. Her father owned a hotel uh, in um, Le Cap. Um, Le, we take you back prior to the revolution, Saint-Domingue is the Pearl of the Antilles. It's fashionable. There's opera. It's, there is a, people come and, and this is a place to stay. It's, it's, it's very huge in the world stage. And Adam Smith, some of your economists will say that the best sugar, the best indigo, the best products are always coming from this Haitian, uh, this uh, Saint-Domingue soil. She's in the middle class. They're a Franchi. She has never known enslavement. And she falls in love with the stable boy, a young man um, who's a little older than her, about a couple of years, maybe 10 years older, um, who fought in the American Revolution, has won his freedom. He was enslaved uh, and he becomes second in command to Jean-Jacques Dessalines, uh, the, at the time, um, the, one of the generals and then a when Haiti is liberated, he's the first president, and then he becomes the emperor, Jean-Jacques Deslines. Well, two years after the revolution, the tensions in Haiti between who has power and who does not have power continue. Jean-Jacques is assassinated, and the country splits. Literally, the, the south becomes a republic, the north becomes a kingdom, and Henri Christophe, number, number two, is now at the head. At first, he is the president. But as he is trying to figure out how to keep France from coming back, he wants to play on the world stage's politics. And he has this idea that if people recognize, and people being the kings of, uh, of the presidents of the United States, the kings of Spain and Portugal and Britain, and the Republic slash now king again uh, in France, if they recognize this kingship, this kingdom in Haiti, they will not, they will support the kingdom, continue doing trade with the kingdom, and will continue to keep France from coming back. Uh, Louise now goes from being a, um, a daughter of a hotelier to the wife of a general, to the wife of a president, to now a queen of this country. And she wants to, she understands from her vantage point how and why they were free. Uh, leaning into uh, the solidarity of the people, everybody being equal, leaning into their African traditions, because literally all of these people learn to fight. It comes back from Grand Toya, a Dahomey warrior who taught Jean-Jacques Dessalines how to do warfare how to move troops and whatnot. She wants the whole, she thinks that is the unifying part. And so as her husband is trying to become more like Europe, she wants us to keep a hold of the history that kept them free. So there's, there's this natural tension. And then 
the role of a woman because women helped free us, but now you've got a very, once again, very back to a male dominated culture. Women are, should be pretty. Queens should be quiet. They shouldn't have too much to say on the world stage. Uh, so she finds herself at odds with this man she adores, this man she loves, and she's trying to keep him from folly because she continues to hear the rumblings of the people. She has a very big heart for the people. And there's a day of reckoning and she has to help him. And then she has to watch him fall. And then she has to figure out what happens next to her and her family. And she literally has to be in exile from the land that she loves, from what, what remains of her family still in Haiti. She's lucky to get out with her two daughters alive. She makes it to London. And as I read, as, as, as you read at the very beginning of this book, the, the jewelry that she took with her that she was going to use to pay their way, it's all stolen. So not only is she in this new country, she's got to figure out how do I restart my life? And what I'd counted on, that's gone too. So she's in mourning of what's happened in Haiti, losing her husband, losing her country. And the means that she was going to use to protect her daughters of two princesses, that's gone now too. I want to ask you a little bit more about the history. And this is really kind of just a uh, personal interest. Now, so Marie Louise was displaced by a coup. And a part of the coup it was related to the debt that Haiti had to France. And that made me curious because Haiti had broken free from France. How did they end up in debt with France? Okay. So during the time where Henri is alive, King Henri is alive, he is, he is making, he's sending people to uh, England and he's having letters exchanged with the Tsar of Russia. And those two countries actually keep France from trying to attack um, Haiti. So he was somewhat successful, but when he has a stroke and dies, and then you have this coup um, uh, Petion and then, um, the new leader of, of, of the Republic, they unify, Boyer unifies the country, but he gets rid of all the strong men. So all the people he thinks is, uh, that would, would, uh, rise up and oppose him. He has them executed. So five years later, when France comes back this time, because uh, Boyer did not want to be like King Henri. He does not continue this diplomatic missions to England and, and, and uh, Russia and, and these other countries. There's no one defending Haiti. So when France comes back, they bring a huge warship and they intend to blow the, the island to smithereens if they do not... Um, sign over a deal saying they're going to pay reparations. Boyer, in my opinion, from what I find, was more interested in securing the gains that he personally got, that he and his um, cabinet personally got, that they just assumed that this debt would be paid by the people, and they signed it away. Also, there may have been fear, because once again, there are no, the, the people that, that defeated France the first time, they're all gone. Either they've died just natural attrition or a stroke like King Henri, or he's executed all the people who would stand up. So you have no one in the world who's going to standing up for Haiti. 
the people who, who would have uh, risen up to fight France again are all dead. And you have people who are more interested in securing their own economic status. They sign away Haiti's future because now instead of investing in roads and education and all the things that Henri was doing, it now has to go to France. So when you look at the Dominican Republic and Haiti, people want to say mismanagement. People want to say all these different things of why um, Haiti has fallen on a curve. But if you take billions and billions of dollars away from an economy and they're not allowed to invest, you see the differences. Dominican Republic never had this issue. Uh, they had no one to pay. They have been able to continue to build their country. Haiti has been robbing generation after generation to pay these debts. But it all comes down to, in my opinion, a strategic mistake that Boyer makes, believing that this debt is, is, is minimal and because he doesn't have the courage to fight France or because he now realizes his mistake and does not want war, he signs away the future of Haiti. That's incredible. It makes you makes me think of what you said early on, what could have been, you know, just to imagine what could have been. It, 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 it just, just to sit there for the second, I mean, from the, re it's, it's, this is one of those situations where the research is there. Mm -hmm. uh, newspaper articles are showing it. There were vaccinations in the kingdom. He instituted bilingual education. So you would literally go into the schoolrooms and you would hear both English and French being taught to these, these kids. These kids are coming straight off the slave plantations. They're coming to school because he knew to get these kids educated, these are our future. Those were the investments that he was making, that, that he and Louise were making because of their heart for the people and where they understood where Haiti sat in the world. Well, I think that's what's so valuable about you know, your writing and others writing uh, about history is uh, reminds us where we've come from and helps us hopefully to confront some of these things as, as I'm sure there must be talks of, of reparations for Haiti. Do you, is, do you know anything about those? There are always talks, um, but there's been little, very little action. Um, you know, um, you look at the Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower was funded by the interest payments to one of, by one of the banks that held the notes on Haiti. Citibank or Citicorp here in the United States, the, the way this debt changed over and with interest payments, I mean, they literally, it wasn't paid off until the 70s, 1970s. Um, so hundreds and hundreds of years of interest. I would love to see reparations, but at the same time, I think a new wave of leadership has to happen in Haiti. The women need to rise up again and balance out the, all these these factors and people need to look at how we do what we need to do for the children uh, and, and really invest in doing things we need to do for the children. Um, Haiti is, this is, the Haitians need to rise up again. They need to find the unification. They need to rise again as one people as they did before because that's how you destroy monsters by rising up and unifying. So they've got to do that. And the monsters may be financial monsters. It may be political monsters. It may be countries butting in that may not may need to sit back and let them lead. But they need to, they're going to have to figure this out. And they have a legacy of doing just that. So I think they can, and I think they will. And 
I think the world really needs to look at all of that money that the winner had to pay the loser. Well, let's go back for a moment to Marie Louise. Um, you know, you talked about her being exiled in Europe, and she really established herself among the elites there. How did she accomplish that? Her story is amazing. Um, a couple of years ago, I was I was uh, notified that they found a residence of Madame Christophe, uh, Queen Louise, and they put a blue plaque on it. And the this particular location in Maribon is very close to Mayfair. This is a very well-to-do district nature. So I was like, okay, that's very interesting. And then last year, they put another blue um, certi- er, certificate. These are basically saying these are places where this woman lived. And it was a Hastings um, bungalow, uh, very ritzy on a hill, a beautiful uh, view of the sea from the windows. Another very expensive property. Now, if you look at the the typical narrative that I've that I've heard about Queen Louise is that she, you know she she was taken in by by England and this poor waif of a woman and she was ostracized and she lived a very meager life. I've seen two properties now that say nothing about meager. In the heart at the, those particular time frames of the social life of London, the social life of a sea resort in Hastings. And then when I start doing digging, I find how she is on the royal tour. She is going to all the resort spa cities that they that the royals would circulate every year. One doesn't do that out of the kindness, out of someone's heart paying your way. You have to pay your way, which means somehow she's got means again. Somehow she has rebuilt this uh, a fortune. I believe she rebuilds. Uh, from everything I've seen, she rebuilt Henri's fortune uh, using his um, solicitors that he used. She's able to put these different things. And she, one thing I have found, regardless of sex or skin color or race, money trumps everything. And so to be accepted on this stage, she had to have considerable amount of money and she is accepted. Uh, there is, I, I often call this hiding in plain sight in my process, I'm reconstructing things. I am digging through, pulling articles, and I happened to find a travel journal because those were very popular. And this particular author, he's at an opening uh, of the theater in Florence. And he's just casually describing who's there. And he goes, oh, the ex-king of Westphalia, the ex-king of Holland, uh, Prince such and such, and Madame Christophe and her daughters. And then he keeps going. To be seated in the rows that they're seated in is just another example of how Madame Christophe and her daughters are accepted as royalty in these very time frames, as well as the status she has. You're not going to sit on the row with kings if you're not a queen accepted amongst these people. So this is a story that needs to be told because people feelings about what history is or euphemisms they tell them or stereotypes that we believe many times they are completely wrong and sometimes it's incredibly frustrating when you see the evidence right there newspaper article after newspaper article and yet people adapt based on what they think this must be the way history is 
Well, let's step outside of history for a second. Let's step outside of the storytelling and let's talk about you. Um, I read that you started out as an engineer. How did you go from being an engineer to being a novelist? Alrighty. So there's a test that you take when you're in an elementary school or actually middle grade, and it's trying to decide where you should go. And so it's like, it has these quadrants to ask you like a hundred questions or something. Taking this thing like twice, every time I took it, I was dead center. Um, I was gifted in writing and I was gifted in math. I was on the academic team and all that kind of fun stuff, but I was also winning competitions in writing, governor's awards and things like this. And my mama sat me down one day and she's like, baby, I know you love this writing stuff, but you always need to be able to pay your bills. So <laughs> math pays the bills. A PhD from Stanford in mechanical engineering takes you wonderful, great places. I've worked for General Motors. I've done projects for NASA. Math does great. But when you have a, um, a passion for something, it never leaves. And I've been very fortunate to be able to make this transition uh, to let these gifts of, of being able to write and write these stories come to pass. Well, I want to ask you more about that transition because just from your online presence, I get the impression that you were very business-like in your endeavors as an author. Um, is that intentional? Is that something you enjoy? What is it like for you to kind of dip your toes into the business aspects, you know, instead of just being a storyteller? Well, the unfortunate thing, and you know this, is you just can't write the story. Uh, you've got to, because you've got to get it out there. You've got to you've got to project and 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 tell the story, um, because if you don't, it's like the tree falling in the woods. Does it make a sound? Uh, you have to tell a story. You've you've got to get on social media. You have to write articles. You 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 have to do things to bring attention, the spotlight. I've been gifted to tell these stories. But I also have a responsibility to make sure the stories are heard. Uh, so I'll do what I need to do to um, to market these stories because I, I think there's so much misunderstanding. There's so many times we think we're so different from anyone or we haven't had these particular unique challenges. And when you find people who have done phenomenal things, particularly when they have a background that you can identify with, or a face that looks like yours or your ancestors, there it's something wonderful. And you know, when given the platform, you have to make the most of it. So I will, uh, business-like is a very interesting word. Um, I will do what I what's necessary to get these stories out because I want the readers to know. I think people who enjoy history, they love these stories and they love how we go and, and find all this research and pull it together and, and show a perspective that they weren't even aware maybe that existed. I think that's a gift and it's fun and, and, and I like doing it. When I like the way you said that, you know, as an author myself, I feel a little reticent sometimes because I don't want to bother people or annoy them, but you kind of rephrase that in another way that, it's they, stories that they deserve to, to have and to hear and to learn about. You, you, uh, you, I know you, you. You put your heart in what you do, right? And you know you haven't done a disservice. You know you've, 
you've checked all the boxes of, of story development and character development, and you've researched your facts, you, you owe it to people to give them this type of story. You, they need to hear it. And, you know, I'm very proud of these stories and I feel very privileged to be able to tell them. So if I need to stand on the street corner and shout out, buy my book, <laughs> I'm going to do it because, you know, if you're quiet about it, no one else is going to hear it. Those, those, mm-hmm. there are stories of lightning striking and things happening, but it's very rare. And mm-hmm. I, I'm living in the sunshine, not waiting for the thunder. Well, you write more than just historical fiction. You also write historical romance and mystery. Do you have a preference for one or the other? And can you talk about uh, maybe the differences and in what it means to write each one? Sure. Um, I have no preference. It's To me, it's always the stories and the characters. Um, but there are times uh, my original entree into writing was historical romance, primarily because I don't think the world of fiction or the world of traditional publishing was ready to focus singularly on black women, women of color in power positions. The default is the enslavement story and some always being in need of a savior or being that best friend or wise talking grandma or something to that effect. Uh, And you re it's very rare to see agency Uh, women doing what they need to do in these historical contexts, but in romance, the woman's supposed to have agency. She's she's accepted to have a level of agency that she's trying to do something. So it was, a, it was an easier venue to get into. And I'm not trying to say it's easier to write because trust me, writing romance is hard. Trying to make a new story um, with all the twists and turns when people know how it's supposed to end. That's a challenge. Um, historical mystery is exciting because it's another way of showcasing lifestyles of people in that time frame, uh, showcasing the histories of also like architecture and and uh, the political movements because the abolition movement, uh, my Lady Worthing series, the abolition movement is is one of the key players. Um, to me, it's fascinating because you know there's a lot of changing or what's a better word for it where they change what the facts are to suit the present day agenda. People we think are heroes may not necessarily have been heroes. They may have been compromisers. They may have been, I'll vote for this because this is the lesser of evils kind of thing, as opposed to spearheading, we really want people to be free. So there, the when you go through and you look at the political wranglings, it's a hot mess and it's just so fascinating. Uh, and then envisioning a, a woman with agency, with money, who is trying to navigate these straits because she doesn't quite belong in this class. She doesn't quite belong in that because she is a biracial woman um, trying to fit in the in the this 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 white ton world uh, with all of the various complications that are happening. And then, of course, people are dying around her, and she's got to figure. She feels as much as passion as she feels to do the right thing and get the abolition movement started started and working. She also feels that same passion to uh, solve mysteries and get the bad guy to go to jail because you're frustrated in this political context that's not quite going to end yet or it's, it's still ongoing. But you can resolve a murder. You can figure out who did it, why they did it, and, sh- and help them come face justice. 
So it's, it's a great way to, to have this very layered story that gives history, but you also get great characterizations because um, Abigail's world is complicated, you know, and, you know, I'm, I might've liked Dynasty when I was growing up in Dallas and, and uh, Remington Steel and Murder, She Wrote and <laughs> these different aspects. And you kind of see all of that blended together in, uh, in the Lady Worthing series. Well, I want to wrap things up with some of the things you, you just kind of covered. You write in a, a genre that focuses on illuminating the voices of marginalized Black women. Can you talk about how important and valuable that is and in, in, in what your goal is maybe or what you want readers to take away from your stories in that regard? Yes, I, I want to challenge what people think. Uh, oftentimes, we think we know history when uh, the truth is always stranger than any fiction. Uh, sometimes we limit in our heads what someone could do and achieve because we think we know. And so I'm giving you the facts on the ground, wrapping them in great stories that are going to entertain you, but also edu edutain you, as I think Beverly Jenkins coined the phrase. I'm I'm going to give you real history, but I'm going to give you people you want to root for. Uh, I will show they're not perfect people. I will show you their flaws as much as you see their heroism. Um, it's, to me, it's so very important that you see that the world is actually more diverse and that there were more people who came together to fight good causes, even people of different backgrounds, of different uh, experiences to do important things. And whether I use the landscape of a historical romance or a historical mystery or my favorite historical fiction, I'm going to give you a story that is wrapped in history, but will move you and show you things of people with agency. You're gonna look at history a little differently. And I think that is the important thing. History is so important. We all need to know it. We all need to look at it with fresh eyes and eyes that may be brown, not just blue, uh, from skin tones that are not necessarily just white or black, but all of the different mixes in between. I think it's exciting to see people who've done incredible things, even in the most uh, direst circumstances, I want to return their agency in these stories. And I think I do. And I think that's incredibly important. It is important. And, and hearing you talk about it, I, I really just can't help but smile. You say it so well. Thank you. Thank you. As you. I'm passionate about these books. And I thank you for this opportunity because anytime you can, you can talk to people, especially fellow writers, you know how important these stories are and how important it is to really look at history. Um, and, and, and give it a freshness and, and a fresh perspective because you always learn something. And, and to me, that is so exciting. Well, Vanessa, congratulations on Queen of Exiles and, and all your writing success. And thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.